Welcome to episode 12 of the Swift Teacher Podcast. One lesson at a time towards... Swift World Domination. Joining us today is Kane Petard. Kane is a humanities and computer science teacher from Butler College in Butler, Western Australia. He is responsible for the creation and ongoing development of the Butler College IT teaching program. Kane's passion is using digital learning across all learning areas. Previous to becoming a teacher in 2013, Kane worked as a systems administrator and owned a computer consulting business. Welcome, Kane. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. So why don't you start and tell us you know, about Butler College and what you teach and do there? Oh, a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, Colour, Butler College is actually a new college. We're only established in 2013. Uh, we're an independent government school. So while we're funded by, by the government, we set our own budget for the administration. We have about 2,000 students, uh, ranged from ages years 7 to 12. Uh, we've got our first lot of graduates this year, which is exciting. Um, essentially, what's because we we're all brand new, to, in, we didn't have any computing program when we first started. In our second year as a college in 2014, a friend and I decided, to, a colleague, decided to set up an internal uh, computer program within the college. Um, what else do we got here? We're a one-to-one uh, school and... It's a bring-your-own-device type arrangement. So the students need to bring in a MacBook Air or a MacBook Pro. That's what's on their book lists. But we also provide a whole lot of um, banks of iPads for the students to use across the different subject areas in the school. So we've got about 300 iPads and to complement the student laptops. All right. So it sounds like when you are teaching, you say college. Uh, in the U.S., we would probably call that high school. Is that something they Mac? Well, they're all called high school, but when we became independent, they've been renaming them to colleges. So. I guess the areas of my teaching, I teach upper school computer science, uh, which is an ATAR subject for getting into university. But I teach in two areas. Also, I teach modern history in upper school, as well as lower school um, humanities subjects and computing when required, depending on staffing. Oh, wow. So you truly are a renaissance man teaching humanities and computer science. Yes. And what I try and do is try and... My ultimate goal is to actually blend the two areas. Um, also, I bring computing into the humanities because it is a big growth area. Uh, the fact that digital tools allows us to do so much more, particularly based in Australia, that my passion is obviously Middle Ages castles. It's very hard for us to do a, a field trip and go see your local castle in Europe. So we're using virtual tools to do that. And that's very exciting. And we're sort of looking at projects to try and get coding across areas as well now within the college. So there's a lot happening. We've got a very dynamic college. We're all new. This is our fifth year being open, and we're still developing a lot of processes. So you're just barely older than Swift. Yeah, pretty much, yes. It's been a very fun journey. I was one of the foundation staff, so it's been a long journey. Uh, But it's definitely getting there. Very exciting place to work. That's interesting that you mention how uh, you want to bring it in the humanities because the digital technology is so prevalent there in the humanities. I just had a conversation with my son who is just entering high school. And I said, you know, you really ought to consider some kind of software engineering because there's software in everything now. Yeah, I, I really, that's really an important point. I think you make that, you know, there's, there's dig- digital technology in every profession now. Oh, definitely. And that's what we try to get through to our students. It's not an isolated, isolated field anymore. And we've got a lot of students who want to be trades and big ones bricklaying here in, um, in Perth, WA, where the houses made a brick. Uh, but now a company in Perth, I think called uh, Robotics, they've invented a machine that'll lay your uh, house for you, completely robotic, within three days. It'll wow. lay all the bricks for a house. And they're running a pilot program for that here. They're going to build 10. So 
What does that mean for the future of bricklayers? Future doesn't look so good, does it? Not, not for certain professions, no. So how did you start or what was your journey to teaching coding? Well, when we started off, it was just a general IT course. So the person who set up, helped me set up the IT program, she also worked in humanities. And we started as the college, the initial philosophy for administration was, well, essentially every student has a computer. They'll just naturally pick up the computing skills. And But we went back to them and said, look, that isn't the case. There's actually computing specific skills we actually need to teach, to teach the students. Um, in the first year, it was a very much a business type focus, ICT, things like PowerPoint, making websites and doing Excel, more which traditionally, I guess, been taught in an ICT course. Um, I didn't find that particularly satisfying and I was in a couple of years when I was senior school, I wanted to set up a computer science school uh, program. So we actually, I went back to them and said, look, we need to have a, more of a computer science type focus um, with the, in the lower school, so they'll have the skills when they move into year 11 and 12 for the university subjects. So it was a slow process. At the same time, Australia's aboard in a national curriculum, which coding is a very central part of that. Officially, we don't teach, start teaching that till next year, but the national curriculum, digital technologies, coding is essentially taught um, different concepts pretty much from year one all the way through year, ten, uh, year eight is compulsory, and then it's an elective after that point. Yeah, I have to say I'm a little uh, – that was mentioned by both Daniel Budd and uh, David Brown about your national curriculum and coding. And I have to say I'm a little jealous that uh, Australia has been able to implement that because you have so much of a national education system. I wish we had things like that here in the U.S. Um, where we could – Yeah, it's still state-based, yeah. Yeah, we still – oh, that's right. So it's Western Australia that's implemented that? Correct. Yeah, they have this own slight version. There's only small variations from the national because each state – Mandates we want you to focus on these these areas within the national framework, but yes, it's um everyone generally does the same thing. I know in Queensland they're making com- computing compulsory up to I think year ten, whereas in WA it's only compulsory to year to year eight. So different states have different approaches to it. That's interesting how your administration thought. Well, we'll just give them a computer and they'll pick up the skills. And because we have had similar experiences in my district, well, we'll just give them an iPad. They already know how to use it. They grew up with iPhones. And we said, well, we they, the kids have the – they know how to use their iOS devices for social stuff, but they don't know how to use it for production and, and learning, so we have to teach that. So it's funny how that's a similar argument. And that's – it's amazing. I say – they call it – I don't really like the term digital natives. Um, yes. Just because they grow up with – but they actually don't know how it works. They know what they do know. And as I said, the students have said – once you get outside what you're used to or what your friends use, you know different than my grandmother who got her first computer at 90, you know, <laughs> and start using it. She got herself a laptop. Thing. But once they get a comfort zone, I know the first time I showed, you know, show source on a HTML page, they're like, wow, that's what's behind there. And then you start to get their interest. So, uh, But they're eager. But the, I think the main difference is being digital natives, which I don't really like. They're not afraid to have a go. Right. Yeah. And I always tell students, you know, had the, how I learned was just to sit and play and not afraid to break stuff. So, yeah, I, I think you're probably right. The digital natives aren't afraid to play. And the reason we got in the coding, I want to put, obviously, it's an essential skill, but also I think it has an indefinite end product in there. A lot of the other things we do in curriculum, look at databases, networking, but when we teach coding, there's a definite end product that can actually work towards and something they can develop themselves outside the school with just a laptop and some time. What is your favorite part of teaching coding? My favourite part, I guess, is solving problems. And that's why coding exists. You can see a problem, and I try and, interestingly enough, I try and bring a lot of humanities sort of problems into coding, like this sort of situation, how could you build a digital solution for this sort of environment? 
But I think students sitting down, working their way through a code and getting that, oh, oh, I've solved this problem and being really proud of actually what they're making. And when I'm in my classes, I tend to set a lot of problem-solving or challenge-type questions for them. I give them a brief, come up with a solution. And the students come up with lots and lots of different solutions to the same problem, which I really, really enjoy because you've got different, they've all got different backgrounds, different perspectives of how to actually get to what they think is a good product for the end user. And then the advantage they can do with that is obviously big part of sharing is they're sharing their ideas with each other and actually learning off each other. And that's, I really, really enjoy that. That um, one does a brilliant job, they all crowd around it, learn what that student does, how they did it, and they'll take those ideas back and improve their own code. So that's really like a, a model of a working development company where nobody works alone, but they, you're working as part of a team, it sounds like. Um, most definitely, yes. And then team's important. And well, I guess we'll talk developers, what, what my focus is, but we try and put them into groups like four and we give them different roles and different responsibilities. They all develop it, but... People work in teams. In the real world, you're working teams. Wherever you go, you'll get signed a job, a task to do, and you've got to work with other people. And that's an important skill to obviously teach with our students. But you don't sit by yourself coding. You've got to interact with other people. Yeah, that's really important. It sounds like from the intro you talked about with your one-to-one program with MacBook, but you have iPads, it sounds like you're teaching Swift on both iOS and Mac. Is that correct? Yes, it's a bit of a strange journey. So before uh, Playgrounds came out for the, uh, the iPad, I originally run a pilot program using teaching just Xcode, the Swift environment. Yeah, it didn't work. It wasn't too bad. Uh, it was very intensive. Trying, there was a lot of factors to teaching with no programming experience because prior to that, we'd only taught, we'd only taught Scratch you know, nice drag-and-drop block programming. Um, so when Swift Playgrounds came out, very, very excited. So the program we have is in our year seven and eight and some part of nine, they're using Swift Playgrounds on the iPad to learn all the uh, fundamentals of programming. From there, we then progress them onto the uh, Xcode environment through the app development course. How, how long have you been using both Swift Playgrounds and, well, I guess one one year, right? Or is this the first year? Well, yeah, uh, when it came out last year, as soon as we could update our iPads to iOS 10, we actually run a trial, just as, towards the end of last year, a trial, because obviously we run February through to December as our school year. Uh, so uh, with our digital technology students, they did about four weeks of it late last year as a trial. Uh, this year, all our lowest, all our students from years 7 through the 10 did Learn to Code 1, which is about 500 students did in semester 1, and the same amount is doing it in semester 2, which was started about six weeks ago. Um, we fit that within the rest of our digital technologies program. So they do it for about, it was about seven or eight weeks they covered Learn to Code. And we see them like twice a week for one hour. So essentially two hours a week we have them for computing. And you've, you're using the intro to app development with your high school or your year 10 and a old and older, or you're going to use both? That both. is the plan, yes. Oh, We're just implementing a new program, yeah. We're so our digital technologies are going to follow the curriculum, but as of next year, or we trialled this year, we're going to advance digital technologies class and we can actually customise that to whatever we wish inside the school because it's outside the national curriculum. And that's going to be a software development course. So our advanced year nine students this semester, they did learn to code one last semester, and they're actually, they've started doing intro to app development this semester as a follow-up to last semester's course. Well, that's exciting. I think you'll really like that course. Uh, my junior students, so that would be year 11 for you or year 12. 
I don't know. Where does it end? Year 12? Is that your last year? Uh, year 12 is, yeah. That was 17 year, 18 year uh, olds. Okay. So, students, so, yeah. so my year 11 students will be doing both Swift Playgrounds and um, Intro to App Development with Swift concurrently. And I'll, you know, start in one and then progress. I'll probably start on Swift Playgrounds app. And then those lessons, when they match up with Intro to App Development, we'll switch over to that. So we get further reinforcement of all the skills. Um, but I think you'll really like that intro into app development with Swift. It's, it's well designed. Yeah, it is. Um, I got obviously David Brown, you previously spoke to it. We're not too far away from each other, so we read up, meet up fairly regularly to discuss our different programs and share resources and ideas. So he was telling me it was fairly good. But the idea of the moment, we're sort of backfilling our years to seven to ten. We're all doing um, Learn to Code 1 uh, with the advanced kids. Uh, but eventually that'll happen. They'll do Learn to Code 1 in seven or maybe in year seven, learn to code two in year eight, learn to code three in year nine. And then the for normal kids, they'll do app development in year 10. But the advanced students, we want to go into the university level subjects. They'll actually start that in year eight as of next year. We've got an advanced computing in basically year eight, nines and tens. And um, we want they'll be on the software development path. So from year eight, hopefully we'll do intro to app development and then push them through and they'll start working on essentially three years worth of projects. Oh, that's fantastic. They'll really get a nice basis for if they want to head to um, university of uh, computer science and programming. So they'll really, and I I had an interesting discussion in the Slack team with uh, Dr. Nicholas Outram from Plymouth University in the UK. And he was, he had mentioned that, you know, maybe eventually we might see students leaving um, high school or as you call it, college, heading to university with uh, some skills that they'll be beyond the entry-level courses even in college. And that is true because um, we had a visitor, uh, an external person who was a university lecturer of software development, and he was saying to my year 12s, it's amazing that you're doing the things that are, used to be university-level subjects. And and so they're already coming to that basis. So I assume it will happen there will be this natural um, – the first year uni, you've got to have that catch-up year, but there will be an assumption they'll be able to move very quickly by their second year of other students coming through. But there's no subjects at university here. You have to, have to do computer science as a compulsory entry subject, so, yeah, which is, a, I think, um, Mr. Spears in Scotland were, was, wasn't too happy about. Hence, students don't often choose it mm-hmm. uh, because they don't have to do it like English and math. You, you need to get that in a certain subject. So but that may change in the future. Now, you mentioned you taught Scratch previously. Have you taught any other uh, programming languages? And you mentioned... Well, this is actually my fifth year teaching. Uh, so this is the only computer program we have taught. Um, so, yeah, so we look for Scratch. And part of my process when we started was actually searching around to find a language that we could actually teach within the school before I decided on Swift. Um, I mean, when I was in school, I learned Pascal and Basic. I actually went back and looked at those. Yeah, which too. They're a good teaching program. Um Pascal, but yeah, I said on Swift. So, I mean, at, at university, I learned Ada. I mean, and that was at the point, what, the early 90s, where then people was all moving to Java. Um, all the universities here teach Python as their preferred language. I went for Swift, I guess, because it's such a good teaching language. And as long as they learn the concepts right, it doesn't matter what language they move into after school. It, it's important. I, I personally think that Swift is a perfect teaching language. Um, it's safe, it's powerful, and easy to pick up, but it's it's being adopted much more quickly in the U.S. amongst 
K through 12 than it is in the university. And I'm eventually going to cover that in some up, in an upcoming episode. Yeah, I, when I saw Swift after having learned Objective-C, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much better than Objective-C. The students could pick this up very easily. And I think that was one of their, when their goals when they created Swift was they wanted to have a language that was, you know, easy enough for just simple scripting, but also low level enough that you could write an entire operating system in it. So I think they, as a result, they gave us a really good teaching language. Yes, well, that's the advantage because it is so much newer that it hasn't got all those leg- legacy elements that it actually needs to follow. So they could start from scratch and hence it's a much cleaner and much nicer language to actually work with than, say, Objective-C, which is not a good thing to teach students, I don't think, at high school level anyway. You did scratch and you looked at the other languages and you decided Swift uh, was your language, but that's not the only thing you focus on. Recently, you had uh, some interesting posts in our Slack team in a discussion started by Daniel Budd about user interface and user uh, experience design. Would you please share with us about uh, the project you're thinking about doing in your classroom? Essentially, we have users for software. If a software isn't designed very well, people can't use it. And essentially, I say to my students, no one's going to buy your software. And a user-centered design, I think, is the most Probably the overlooked aspect from a lot of courses, they tend to focus on it as an afterthought, from what I've found. But I think the end user experience, the end user usability of a product, should be the prime focus of any development because if the person's got to use it day in and day out, depending on what the app is. Also, if you design a very good user interface, um, more people are actually going to pick up your app if you say if you put it on the app store or put it in a general, um, make it available to the wider community. So... And like I said, a lot of that comes from my humanities. I was sort of got a, my background is also business and things like that. Is um, simply that a good idea uh, developed very badly will not sell, no matter how good it is. And the history is full of examples like that of things that didn't were brilliant, wrong place, wrong time, or they just were so badly designed, didn't uh, someone didn't people didn't take it up, and therefore something better comes along and it improves on it. And so that goes back a long time with Apple very early on has got the human interface design guidelines for the desktop and now they've got one for the iOS that good design ends up with good products, uh, even particularly in the interface. So the project we're sort of looking at the moment is for our Year 9 Advanced course doing the intro to app development. Uh, we've actually arranged for them to have an external client. It's still in school, but I've had staff members nominate a product they want developed and we've got nine projects being put up by staff in our school and what we're going to do is actually divide the students into teams of four and we're going to have particular roles within that and they're going to do that over the rest of this semester. Basically we give them four roles which is team leader, a coder, a usability person which is like basically the visual design person and a tester. And the way we want them to do is actually meet with these clients that have been given a brief uh, they've got to sit down and find out from the client who the target group is. The platform's got to be iOS, because it's just within our course. Uh, look at different alternatives. Work out what the goal of the app is. So why a client may say, I wanted to do this, actually finding out exactly what they wanted to do is a research process. Uh, they then need to go through the client, what tasks does they need to do? An example of that is one of the projects being put up, we've got a, we've got a specialist program for it. Disability students of varying skills. We're getting a student next year who's deaf and partially blind. Uh, and at the moment, they use flashcards to give instructions to these sort of students. And one of the projects they want to put up is actually one they can use an iPad to, to give visual commands or verbal commands as well as an image to give these students instruction very quickly and easily that they can actually follow. And 
to many of these students, they won't actually know because they don't have the life experience what it's like. So they really got to work with the project, uh, the client, which is the teacher, find out the exact requirements and then come back with and try and build a project. So that's part one. Part two is the students go away, write a design brief, write down what they think the software needs to be, who the users are, what platform they're going to put it on, and outline what the app is going to achieve and how they're going to do it, and then they get the client to sign off on that. So over actually a real-world sort of business type arrangement, they would get. Uh, part two, essentially what happens is they then have to go away and to do a, uh, an inter- interface design. Uh, and I think it's the most important. They have to justify what they do, those design options, such as maybe what icons they use, how they arrange the information on the screen. Then go through the client and test it. And that can be testing with the client, make sure it works properly, and also getting user feedback. So they might go and speak to the users who would use it. I guess we're sort of the discussion on the Slack group and some options are put up, but we're looking at using Keynote to do that. They can mock it up, uh, create active links with the icons within Keynote, and actually have the client actually step through the program as it would be designed before they start any coding. And that is very important. And they'll go back and forth on this project till they get an agreed interface design that the client's very happy with, and then they can move on to the actual project technical design stage of it. Wow. (laughs) That is a fantastic-sounding project. So that's the interface design section. Uh, The second one is then they'll go into flowcharts, pseudocode, detailed interface design, all the technical Especially you're normally covering your computer science course and map it out. Wow, that's a lot to un- that's a lot to unpack. I, uh, yeah, it's it's that's really detailed. I think I might have to uh, borrow some of these ideas. They're they're Kane. They're fantastic. I like how the they're really justifying the need for it and the user interface. Back on episode two, I interviewed Douglas Keong from Punahou Academy in Hawaii, and they really spend a lot of time doing this as well, and they're seeing a lot of positive results from it. So this that's really a great idea, and I really like how you're using Keynote to and using the images, which would be buttons, to other links to other pages in the Keynote so that the client could get an idea of how it's going to work. That's, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, old school way of doing is paper, but we're limited in time. And you know, honestly, I don't expect the students actually get to the coding this semester. Some may do. depends how fast they get through the project. But what we're planning to do as part of our design process is if they don't finish this semester, they'll pick it up beginning first semester next year. So hopefully the students will pick it in year 10, the next subject. So it's actually the same project. The idea is there's an iteration. They go back to the same projects that, again, this is eventually what we're going to do from year 8, 9 and 10. They're going to work on the same project over three years. And part of that is they'll get a project and people come and go. We can change the teams over. But the idea is they've got to design the project well. And it's that skill of going back to your code again, improving making sure the first time you comment it out. So if you don't say it for six months or a year, oh, this is your project, you actually know what your code meant the first time you do it. So it's getting those design principles that you can easily update your application and continually looking at improving it over a period of time. So the idea, coming back to the same project, because often in school we design something and then move on, and that's quite frustrating. We don't give a chance for students to go back, see what, learn from the experience and actually improve on it. So the idea is on the advanced path, we've got this three-year development process with the same application going through. And even if there's different groups doing it in year 10 who started in year 8, it's like you've come into a company and said, oh, this is the project, this is where it's at, you've got to pick it up and, and build on top of what's been done previously. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think that in the point you made about how in school we 
create and move on. Working developers, a lot of time, they have an app or a project and they work on it and then they iterate on it and keep making it better over years. So I really like how you talked about how students have to leave good comments so that You know, I talked about with my students, you know, future you is not going to know what current you is thinking. So leave yourself good comments as notes so you can go back and don't have to sit there for hours trying, well, what was I thinking? No, that's that's a really good idea. And you look at even Apple for the ISO apps, they're constantly having updated to what Apple requires. It was ISO 10, was it? Apple did a big purge of people who hadn't updated their apps. Yeah, that's coming up in iOS 11. Yeah, I spent my June updating. 11 is it? Yeah, I know it was one of them. But but that's that process, that's continual process of having an update, keep up with what, say, an app store type environment. Otherwise, you lose your market because your app gets removed if you can't do that continual updating. And also adding new features or improved functionality and bug fixing for something that actually has already been developed. So the staff, our clients, have known, they know that they might get their app this year, they might get it next year or so, but they understand that's the process our students are actually going through. And we've had a very interesting range of apps, and like we had the disability one there, you know, phys ed people, there's probably apps out there, but phys ed people logging times and even making sure students in the correct uniform. One staff member wants a random thing that will give suggestions what they should eat for lunch as an app, like <laughs> random. And it's like, and the waiting of how much is it. So we've, we had a huge range of um, different ideas coming, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah. Teachers have no shortage of good ideas, do they? Yes, most definitely, yeah. And we've got the standard ones, you know, spelling for the year sevens and eights, spelling type apps and things like that. We actually, interesting, we had apps that, knowing the knowledge across school, said another reply, no, no, this already does that. So some teacher sent me a message, oh, can you get for our specialist program, can you read out the iPhone screen, you know, read out the text, oh, that's already a feature, you can go do this, this is how you do it. Or um, they said, oh, I need a brainstorming app that can work in teams. Well, Poplet does that, you know, there's already tools out there. What is your favorite feature of the Swift language? I think, well, I definitely have to say be readability. So if we sit down there, so uh, coding in Xcode, um, I like just readability, auto formatting it does, you know, the spacing, tabulating, things that I guess in the past I'd have to do manually. It's automatically done. My students like the obviously the, the auto checking, the nice red dots as we go down. It also frustrates them if they don't know what the message is. But the fact that you can quickly, easily read Swift code. Uh, even if I don't know what's... Yeah, the syntax is great. They got rid of a lot of the baggage and extra cruft that was in Objective-C. So that is that's a good good thing I, I really like that as well most definitely yes my favorite feature as a teaching language my favorite feature is type inference because students don't have to go back and add the colon type string and i mean they can and sometimes we teach that it's, i teach that it's necessary but i really like type inference yeah we sort of got caught a bit with that um maybe for the written exams that yeah they've got to state what sort of <laughs> variable it is um they're so used to writing a swift without thinking about it when they did the pseudo code they were just leaving that more of, it's an academic thing, you know, writing their pseudo code for exams. They they weren't putting that back in because also naturally it was done for them when they were coding. So that was, but that was just a, a lesson we learned actually using Swift to then relate to what they've got to do on the um, on the written side of project. What has been most surprising to you in teaching Swift? The most surprising thing, um, I guess, one thing Apple's really pushing, but what I really like is the amount of hardware that's actually been linked into Swift now, and how rapidly that's come on in what. Eight months? Is it about eight months or nine months since Apple released officially released Playgrounds? And that is very, very important, I think. Um, obviously, Apple got a lot of weight, so manufacturers are adapting to the Apple environment, which is good. But the fact that the kids, uh, especially the students after, say, we were introducing first time this semester after they do the functions and loops lesson, after that we're getting them to use spheres, the Spheros to actually use 
have practical applications for their code. And that's part of the problem we had was students when we just didn't have that hardware interaction with them. Students found a bit monotonous going through the Learn to Code program. But the fact that we can now take them out and do hardware-based activities, they can program it, test out their code, I think it's surprising and also very, very beneficial for our education environment. Uh, we've got Spheros, uh, we've got MBOTS, which I've got a beta version for the playgrounds. There's some code for that as well. We've got EV, obviously Lego here as well in this college, and we're looking to get some, some parrot drones as well next year out of our budget. Being able to see a result of your work is always motivating. We have Spheros, and I'm looking to get some Lego Mindstorms because of all the new additions in the Swift Playgrounds app, which, believe it or not, that has been out for iOS has been out a year now, but the Swift Playgrounds environment has been out since they released Swift, in, but it was in Xcode originally on the Mac. Apple is working very hard to uh, iterate and keep developing those tools, especially Swift Playgrounds for iOS. I mean, in a year, they really batted a lot, and I really like what you say about the students needing, having the hardware, and that edition in version 1.5 is very popular, and I'm looking forward to using it. Most definitely, yes. Yeah. And now I think that's, well, it's not surprising because Apple's so big, but the speed of what's happened and the support they've got. And I imagine there's a lot of people working behind the scenes at Apple making that happen. Yeah, I'm sure there are. How have your students responded to learning Swift? It's a bit of a mixed bag. So our advanced kids are fantastic. And they're loving the intro to app development. Um, much more enjoyable. So first time we ran it was last year, large scale the whole, for the whole school. And they, a lot of the students found monotonous. So we're making, this is compulsory every year, seven and eight students. So even students that aren't interested in computing getting are required to do it. And that's probably our biggest challenge. So our good students loved it, the ones who would normally get in computing as an option, uh, but not so much our students that couldn't see the relevance to it. And they found they found a bit not to go through, and we didn't have the hardware, so they couldn't make the link of where it was going. And so we actually redeveloped between the semester breaks. We've sat down and redeveloped our course a lot to actually try and target those areas and target those kids who are actually getting much more engaged. So what we've done this time, so first time pretty much one learned to code, pretty much as it was out of the box, prescribed by Apple, and they learned the skills, but we found about two-thirds of the way through the students became less motivated. So what we've done this time is obviously we've introduced the hardware, the spheros after like lesson, after the functions, which is lesson three, and towards the end as well, so they can demonstrate their skills. But what we found is a lot of students, the reason they got bored and disengaged was they'd do the first three or four, not really read the instructions properly, and get stuck. So what we've done this time, we've introduced an exercise book that students do in the class. So they actually, before they start doing their coding, they need to sit down and actually plan on paper with a pseudocode picture, drawing, flowchart, how they're actually going to tackle the problem. So they've actually got a reference point to come back to or discuss with the student next to them how they're actually going to tackle this problem so when they get stuck halfway through. We've also redone our PowerPoint. So we modify the ones Apple supply us and we sort of customise it to our students. And we actually spent a lot of part of the course this time saying what the end game was for learning Learn to Code because they said it's sort of a, a fun activity but they didn't know where it was actually going in the long term. So part of our first lesson is really talking about what apps are, how do we write them. We actually show them an example of an Xcode project. And this is the code. This is eventually where you go. You can run apps like this. We talk about young developers, the WWDC. We show them the clip from WWDC of a 10-year-old developer from Australia. Uh, and we also show them another fantastic video, which I'll put in uh, the links to, about why you should learn to code. Uh, it's a TED Talk. And we spend a lot of time talking about why we're actually doing the activities. And we found this semester, because a couple of students have chosen the same subject again, are really, really enjoying it this time. They find it there's much more relevance to them actually within the project, and they can actually see where they're going to it. And that's the bottom, I guess, the bottom uh, ability kids in our classes. 
we've really focused on those. And because our top end guys will pick it up anyway. You probably find, find that in your own experience. Yeah, that's it's actually I've, I'm very fortunate in that because I'm in career tech, my students choose to come to learn computer science. So they're all highly motivated. I do some Hour of Code activity projects in December for the Hour of Code, but all my students are self-starters and pretty motivated. And we get that in the upper school as well, and we tend to get that more in the nines and tens because they're choosing it's an elective then. But we've been focused on the sevens and eights because they have to do it, same as they all have to do sport and health and things. They have to do computing for the two years, first two years of the college. Uh, but the idea is we make it interesting. More of those students will then pick it as elective and we can grow our, our subject area, So we get, which is what our long-term goal is. Obviously, to have more upper school computer science classes, and particularly more girls in them as well. well we're trying to get more girls involved in this. Yeah, as of the moment, we're very male heavy at the moment, but we've got a lot of year nine girls actually in the, in the program coming through, which is fantastic. And a lot of our seven and eight, uh, year sevens and eight girls have really been getting into the computing. A lot have been coming to our after school com- computing club as well, which is fantastic. Wow, you guys really have, sound like you have a really dynamic, fantastic program there at Butler College. I'm curious, what suggestions would you have for a school district or a teacher who is thinking about starting to teach coding or programming with Swift? I think I'd start with Playgrounds. I think it's very, very, very well structured. What Apple put in there, as I said, pretty much we have people teaching out areas. Anyone with, with good classroom management skills, I think you can inspire students, can actually have the students work through the program and they can essentially teach themselves the same sort of skills. But yeah, starting with the Playgrounds. And I think what's important though is actually communicating to the students what the end goal with is. Because so, they see playgrounds, they can't see how it fits into actually writing apps when they first started. Uh, imagine learn to code two and three when they move into the actual custom playgrounds areas. It would be it's different because it, you're not just working through a whole lot of pays and, uh, puzzles and mazes actually going through. Uh, but I find um, the advantage of going playgrounds as well is Apple putting a lot of resources into it. I think that's very, very important. And, and obviously, I think a very important thing if you're teaching, going to move in to actually teaching Swift is actually join the Slack group because there's a lot of fantastic people up there and sharing ideas and obviously listen to these podcasts as well because I've actually got a lot of very good points off listening to the previous podcasts of actually even incorporating into my programs. I think it was uh, Mr. Spears, he was talking about the no delete rule when he's his class. I think that's fantastic. I hadn't thought of that. Now we do that as part of our teaching program and things like that. So just getting up teachers, other ideas from teachers have made our program so much better than what we just thought about what we was thinking in house to do it. Yeah, just like development, you know, you're working as a team is better. I think that's a very good point. Thank you for the commercial. Uh, if you join our our Swift Teacher Slack, yeah, you know, it really is good ideas being shared and and good conversation going on. And that's important. And I don't know if you covered John Hattie's an Australian academic here. Uh, does a lot of research and statistics on what's the most effective strategies actually help students improve and one of them is feedback but his, his latest studies coming out is, uh, is effigy well, I think I said that right between um, staff there's the ability of staff to work together to benefit the students in collaborative groups is they found as one of the most um, has the biggest multiplier in improving student ability and success in the classroom is that teachers shouldn't be working alone we should be helping each other out the developing joint resources and sharing them and because then we all benefit from that and so do our students good point I, I, i'll be interested to see i'll have to check that out i'll be interested to see his work because i think you know he's quite well known at least definitely is australian academic university of melbourne he works out of i have not heard of him but i will definitely check that out because we we have we call it team building time in the u.s a lot of schools have moved to a more of a team teachers that teach similar have will have a group of students and they'll have common planning time to work together so sounds like what he's 
what he's working on. Yeah, sort of. We do it across departments, but yeah, some schools. I know one of the private school my daughter eventually go to is um, yeah they put all the say the year seven middle school teachers in the room, so they're all working together. Whereas at the moment we all the half teachers sit together, you know, all the computing teachers together, English teachers together, because it's such a big school. So we're sort of in our departments, but we do a lot of. We talked. It's important we talk across campus to each other, to the diff- different departments. And we're sort of moving that next year, a lot of more cross-curricular sort of activities. The same with the coding. So I was in meeting the other day, we're looking at how we can incorporate coding into the mathematics curriculum. So they can use coding to actually um, learn mathematics instead of doing, I guess, whatever methods or traditional way they're teaching them at the moment. Well, I have an, actually an idea for you. It's something uh, when you want to go cross-curricular. And the more advanced students that are going to do the intro to app development with Swift, there is, I think it's around lesson 16, they're going to do a question bot. And my students this year are going to be assigned to create, come up with a, a bot, a review bot for one of their classes. So they're going to pick one of their subjects they're going to study, and then they're going to come up with a bot to help them review for something. And then they, we're going to push it out through our MDM so other students in their class can also download it as well. And that's where we want to go. And that's was something looking outside that my student class is actually writing playgrounds for my humanities area. So they can write Swift playgrounds, and I've got items in there all for mathematics. So that's what we're sort of exploring in the early stages of the college. How do we use playgrounds or playgrounds in Xcode? to use those skills across the school because they're very accessible to all departments. And the idea is all our students have done coding seven and eight. So the problem we did computing in other areas previously was the math teacher would spend three or four lessons showing the kids, say, uh, we used to do a, so in Scratch teaching angles, they'd have to teach them how to use Scratch and then get on a mathematical activity. So the idea is they've done coding for those couple of years in seven and eight. They can then take those skills and actually use them in math and math teachers and focus on their coding activities they need to do, not spend time teaching coding to get to that activity. Do you have any favorite podcasts or any other media you want to share that maybe you suggest our listeners take a look at to learn from like you have? Most mine are outside going, they're mainly humanities, unfortunately. One I found is very handy, I got off the list, IT Leadership in Australia. That's one of my favorites. I thought it was good. It's interviewing people in Australia, how schools in Australia and New Zealand and Indonesia, how they've led technological uh, technology change in their, inside their schools. So most of my podcasts, unfortunately, are history. You want the history of Rome and ancient Greek, ancient history by Kagan. They're brilliant if you've got some history thing. But what I would suggest people to look at is actually go look at the TED Talk, Why You Should Code, Why You Should Learn to Code by Genco, G-E-N-C-O. It's a TED Talk. It's fantastic. It goes for 15 minutes. I actually play it with my students whenever we start programming. Because the message there, he talks about how computers can be used. He talks about your phone is more, millions of times more powerful than the, the computer that took the Apollo program to the moon but the best thing of it he doesn't tell computer programmers don't don't learn to computer program to be a computer program learn to computer program to bring those ideas back into whatever job you're doing at the moment whatever it is so it's not a computing talk it's how to get coding computing skills and use it in every type of industry well that's fantastic i will put a link to that in the show notes and it's a brilliant intro to coding because it puts in perspective where it fits in their i guess their greatest scheme of their life. Where can people find you or your work online? Uh, the best place is well, Twitter at the moment. It's Kane Pittard, K-A-N-E-P-I-T-T-A-R-D on Twitter. Uh, I do have my webpage, KanePittard.com. At the moment, it's a travel family travel site, but over Christmas, I'm going to turn that into my blogging site for work. Um, I spoke to David about that. Who's David? Who's yeah, previously? He's fantastic on you know online, but I think the difference is I've still got young kids, so I don't get the amount of time, spare time to sit down and 
do my do my social media things. But the idea by Christmas time, canepitard.com will turn it from a family travel site into my um, where I'm going to share my resources. But Twitter is the best place to get it as well. And you can send me a message there. And I'm happy through the Slack group or Twitter share any of my resources of ideas because I think sharing is fantastic. I was at a professional learning conference called iPad Palooza. It was in the summer of 2016. They brought in a speaker. His book was Steal Like a Pirate. And talking about how some of our best ideas we get from other people and you just incorporate it and build upon them and then the ideas just keep growing, getting better. I, I like that idea of sharing. You want to take a history view on that because one of the ones I think Spears gave, how the, uh, was it, uh, the modern economy in 50, uh, 50 things that made the modern economy. I got that off your one of your other speakers and it's brilliant. But I guess one of the history, historical point of view was to think that the Europeans didn't invent, but they adopted other people's ideas very well, like paper and gunpowder and things. And they did something with the technology that other people really didn't. And you can see it sort of benefits their worlds and their economy that getting someone's other idea, and they might put it out there, but it doesn't mean they don't follow through or get it to its full potential. And that's why sharing the idea is that people give you a different perspective you've never thought of. And you can grab that and run with that, and they can get feedback off you and improve their practice as well. And that's what it's all about, I think. We, I have a special announcement for our listeners. Uh, starting if in the next episode, if not the next episode, the one after that, I'm going to do a Ask the Swift Teacher segment. So you can send questions if you have questions about starting a Swift coding program, or if you have specific questions about the language or projects or anything, you can join our Slack team and there's a channel in there called Ask Swift Teacher, or you, you can tweet your question to the Swift Teacher Twitter account. That is at underscore Swift Teacher, and I will definitely get those in there. And if you include the hashtag Ask Swift Teacher, then I will definitely get your questions and we'll get them answered. So, Kane, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking your time and uh, sharing all your great ideas that you have. Uh, very happy to have on, share my ideas, and I look forward to the future uh, episodes where I can hear about other people's ideas. Time to get Swifty. Swifty.